Well, friends, uh, we're working our way through the first book of Peter, or 1 Peter. If you'd like a Bible, put your hands up and we can get you a Bible so that you can read along. Our practice is, yep, one there, uh, is week by week is just to take the next section of Scripture and try and explain it, apply it, and enjoy it. Um, And today we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 22. If you'd like a title for the sermon, I've named it Our Victorious Christ. Our victorious Christ. It's my privilege now to read God's word to us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went, And proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we pray and ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed that this passage is a little bit of a strange one. Uh, There's some glorious kind of gospel truths mixed with some strange references um, if you cast your eyes back over it. In fact, this is one of the most debated passages, not just in 1 Peter, but actually in all the New Testament. Martin Luther, the great reformer who was always dogmatic about his beliefs, uncharacteristically said of this text, A wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. (laughs) So we proceed with confidence this morning. One other commentator tallied that there's a possible 180 different exegetical ways of putting the combinations of this verse together. Uh, So it's it's a difficult passage, nonetheless. And needless to say, after jet lag, and then I got a stomach bug this week, not the best recipe for detailed and grueling exegetical research, not to mention my average intellect and intelligence. All that to say, we mustn't let the complex get in way of the most useful Um, This passage, if you research it, and we'd be fine if you're that way inclined. I think Scott would enjoy it, I mean, with his optative verbs and everything last week. I think he would have been better. I actually thought that he had this passage, and I came up to him last week before his sermon. I said, sorry that I gave you the most confusing passage. And he's like, oh, I don't think so. And then I realized, oh, no, I gave it to myself. So there you go. (laughs) Should have given it to Scott. That would have been a good pass off. But once we look at this passage from the broader view... Um, the broader lens, we'll see that it's actually designed not to confuse us, but instead to inspire us. It's designed to inspire us to glory all the more in Christ. 
Even as we saw from last week, we might bear shame and reproach and suffering for his name in this present time. You see, last week we saw that just like Peter's readers, for us, we're living in Sydney, at least in a post-Christian, if not an anti-Christian world. And there's going to be every temptation for you and I to fall back in some ways into shame, to, to feel shame for what we believe ethically or intellectually about the Christian faith. There's going to be temptation for us to turn back, perhaps, to doubt our faith. Uh, perhaps you feel this, maybe at school or at, at work or at university or in your context. You feel this sense of like, oh, my beliefs don't match up with those around me, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Well, just like Peter's readers, this is very normal. This is the context into which they were living, into which the Holy Spirit wrote to them, and into which the Holy Spirit is speaking to us this morning to encourage us and inspire us. It's here to encourage us, this passage, in the midst of any opposition, any persecution, and any suffering we might face for the name of Christ. Because although we may look down and out, we may look like we're on the backward, this passage teaches us that in the end, we will win. Because Jesus wins. So although there's 180 different exegetical possibilities for this passage, a two-word summary, Jesus wins. And that's good news for us this morning because, because Jesus wins, we will win also. And Peter's hope for us is that by inspiring us with this message, we will keep going in our faith and never turn back. You see, maybe it's just my temptation, but maybe you share this as well. We often think that suffering in our life is a sign of God's displeasure on us. Suffering, we often think, is a sign that we're doing something wrong, not doing something right. That we're going in the wrong direction. But here, this passage is actually painted for us as an anathema to that mindset. Peter wants us to know that our suffering for the sake of Christ... And the moral ethic Jesus has called us to live out will result in triumphant glory and victory. Because we tread the same well-worn path as our Savior and countless pilgrims before us. But if we balk at the challenges before us in a hostile world, if we change our methods or our message, move on from the gospel or our ethics to suit the whims of our age, we're walking off the well-worn path of suffering that Christ laid out for us into the wilderness, out of safety, which is actually in suffering for Christ and into danger. So Peter pens these verses to steal our resolve so that we'll see through our suffering to the victory of our Savior. So as we study this passage today, we're going to avoid complex exegetical explorations and stick to what is clear and this passage is actually helpfully structured around the reality of the gospel in a way that reminds us of what Christ went through and shows us that we're caught up in it. So I've got three simple points to help us, even if we should suffer for the name of Christ, with three things that Peter wants us to see to help us persevere. Point one, see Christ's substitutionary death. Point two, see Christ's victorious resurrection. And point three, see Christ's exalted ascension. He wants us to see through our suffering 
to the victory of Christ this morning. So let's look at point number one. See Christ's substitutionary death. This passage, verse 18 to 22, comes hot off the heels of the passage that we looked at last week that Scott opened up for us so well. Look at verse 18 again. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sin. So Peter is using these verses to back up what he said in verses 13 to 17. This this passage is giving us an encouragement out of what we've already seen. So we need to back up and just get our bearings a little bit to understand what this passage means. We've got to go back to verse 13. So let's read verse 13 to 17 together. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That's a promise. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That is, of the hostile people in this world that hate Christ and His church. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Like that prophetic image that Matt had of the candle. Like we ought to have that candle burning bright and people ought to ask us about it. Like, why have you got this hope? And you're like, oh, I'm ready to tell you. Yet when you do it, do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, when, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So to summarize this section, we see that even amidst opposition and suffering for the sake of standing for Christ, we shouldn't fear as Christians. Instead, we should eagerly anticipate the blessing that is promised to us, keeping our hearts fully resolved on Christ, never moving from Him, sharing the hope that we have, and being willing to winsomely share that hope with anyone who opposes us. This passage tells us it's a realistic call to joyful hope, even though true and painful suffering may come in the present if it be God's will that you should suffer. So rather than suffering being this result of us doing the wrong thing, it's actually often coming at the result of us doing the right thing. But no one likes suffering. I don't like suffering. Uh, And when I suffer and experience, and you do as well, we're more often to question God or to want to run away or to feel like, oh, this is so bad, I want to give up. And so Peter knows our hearts, and so then he launches into verse 18 and and through to 22 to encourage us in the midst of our suffering. Tom Schreiner says it like this, Just as suffering was the pathway to exaltation for Christ, so suffering is also the prelude to glory for believers. So let's look at the first picture that Peter wants to paint for us this morning. Point one, see Christ's substitutionary death. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We can know that even if we stand for Christ and we endure suffering as a result, it can result in a happy ending because of the ultimate example of suffering that led to a happy ending, namely 
Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for us. You see, here in this verse, we tread on holy ground. For here we have one of the clearest explanations of the gospel in all of Scripture. We could camp here for weeks, if not months, exploring the depths of the beauty of the gospel here. And so even though Peter's main goal in this passage is to inspire us to keep going through our suffering, I want us to just pause for a moment and reflect on the gospel and to see the glory that Christ bought for us once again. It would be remiss of me to move on too quickly from these verses because the one thing, the most important thing we need each and every day is to be reminded of the gospel. And here we have such a reminder The gospel, plain and simple. The rays of the gospel sunshine beaming out of this passage. And I hope it falls upon you and lightens your soul today. If you're not yet a Christian, listen intently to these verses. Because this is the heart of the Christian message. And if you are a Christian, you need this all over again today and be reminded in it. Let's unpack these three statements. Firstly, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Peter tells us that Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, from all the Old Testament promises into eternity past, suffered. That is, he died on the cross once for sins. His death was a unique death, different to all the sacrificial animals in the past. His blood was spilt on the cross once only. And his death was sufficient in that moment to satisfy God's wrath, Peter says, for sins. You see, Jesus was sent to the cross not as an example only, though he is a great example. He was sent on the cross for sins. That is, our sins, my sin, your sins. All of our sins we've committed with all of our being in our past life, in our present life, and in our future life. You see, we're all born into sin. And there's a key moment that must happen in your life if you're ever truly to be converted to Christ. You must, go, you must realize that you're not simply not perfect. No one in this room would pretend to be perfect. Or even not good to realizing that you are indeed a sinner. One who has transgressed God himself. One who is convicted by God's law as a sinner, a lawbreaker. One who is stained, who knows that they're stained with impurity and guilt. Do you know this this morning about yourself? Are you willing to humbly admit before God and others that you too are a sinner? Because that's who Christ died for. If you will not admit that you're a sinner, then Christ has nothing for you. But if you humble yourself and confess, I am a sinner, well, then we have good news. It's a hard thing to admit. It goes against our entire human pride and hubris. It's a horrifying and happy discovery to realize that you are one of these sinners. Horrifying. Because if you realize it, you realize that God really is just and holy and he hates sin. And that you realize that you are under his wrath. 
deserving of the punishment. But then it is a happy discovery because you will read on to the next part to see that you can be saved from that sin. The next little clause, Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter here is telling us that there is a swap that takes place on the cross. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, who was perfect from head to toe, fully obeyed God's will in all of his life, never disobeyed, never deviated, loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength, is swapped with us on the cross. And on the cross, he becomes the unrighteous one. He becomes like us. On the cross, God transfers all of our guilt onto Christ himself. All of our filth and all of our stains go onto Jesus once for all. And he dies once for sins. And this is a happy, happy discovery because divine wrath has been diverted from us once for all. Never will God punish you for any of your sins if you have your faith in Christ. This is good news this morning. But that's not all. Peter goes on to say this, that he might bring us to God. It would be enough, would it not? It would be enough if our sins were forgiven and we were neutral before God, and when we died, we went into non-existence. We just, we got off, like we were going to hell forever. It would be enough if the gospel was, your sins are forgiven, it's done, you enjoy this life, you die, you cease to exist. But that's not the reality. The gospel goes even further than this. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Our unrighteous state is thrown away. We are given Christ's very righteousness. Therefore, Christ can bring us into God's very holy presence. We are brought to God himself. This is heaven. Heaven is being in the presence of God with no sin, with no guilt, with no stain, with no any hindrance whatsoever. We can think heaven, you know, we'll see our friends and a family and we'll have a great life and, you know, we'll experience these joys and we'll be able to visit everywhere that we haven't been able to visit. That would be nice, but that's not heaven. Heaven is being brought to God himself, to know him, to have unparalleled access, to see his glory, to experience his beauty and his magnificence for ourselves. And this is what the gospel affords for us. We are brought to God himself. I know in a room like this, there are many of us who doubt that they'll make it to heaven. We so often think, oh, will I make it to the end? Will, will I really be there? Is this really true? Well, this verse tells us that Jesus brings us to God. And so if you have your faith in Christ this morning, you can be assured this is your certain future and reality. No matter what present suffering, no matter what present circumstance, no matter what you know, joys are not fulfilled here, what hopes are dashed, what pain you experience, you will be brought to God. If this does not give you joy, then I would, I would say I doubt you're truly converted. 
Because the truly converted soul, the one who truly knows God, the greatest desire of their soul, when you clear all the way the hedges and all the way the weeds, is I want to be with him. And maybe if you're not feeling any joy about being brought to God, you need to do some business with God and ask him to clear away those hedges so that you can have that sense of joy again, that this is what I want, is to be brought to him. Now, I would happily pause the sermon here. I think we could just end it and just let's get the band back up. We could sing three or five songs. In fact, when we're in Philadelphia, uh, it was pretty funny. We, we had the sermon and we had the closing song and then they sang an, another song. I was like, oh, they sing two songs to close. And then they sang a third. And I was like, oh, they sing three. Oh, and they sing four. Okay, well, they sing four at the beginning and four at the end. Then they sang a fifth. <laughs> and then they sang a sixth. And I was like, what is going on? I thought that the band leader had just gone rogue. And he was just like, this is my last time. I'm singing till they quit. Uh, and then the, the pastor got up and said, well, thanks for joining us to sing till noon. And I thought, ah, oh, I like that. So in, once every three months or so, they sing six songs or something, and they sing until noon. I thought, maybe we should do that sometime. Today would be a day where we could do that. When we reflect on the gospel, we should be able to sing till noon. But we're not going to. Instead, I, I want to quote to us one song uh, that I think will help us just to rejoice in the glory of the gospel once again. How deep the Father's love for us by Stuart Townend. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. You see, Peter wants us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ, he knows that we need to see the gospel again. And so he paints the picture very briefly but gloriously of Christ's substitutionary death for us. To know that our suffering is not a sign of our failure, but actually a sign of our future victory. But Peter doesn't end there. He wants us to see more. Point number two, he wants us to see Christ's victorious resurrection. Now, here's where things get a bit complex and a bit weird and confusing, and this is where different interpretations abound. But let me read verse 18c to 21 and try and make sense of it for us. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let's not lose sight of the main thing. Peter's trying to encourage us. In the midst of our suffering, we need to see, we need to see the reality of Christ's resurrection. And that's why he says that first bit there, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered, he died, but that's not where the story ends. He was died in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Holy Spirit, he was made alive. Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. He rose again from the dead. So that's another seed for our hope that we have future victory ahead of us. And then he kind of has a parenthesis from verse you know, 19 through verse 21, where he's sort of giving these bracketed sections where he's, he's on the realm, he's on the kind of the, the topic of being in the realm of the Spirit. And then I think what Peter does is he, he gives us these bonus encouragements um, outside of the gospel fact of the resurrection. So there's two bonus encouragements. So let's look at the first little bonus encouragement, verse 19 to 20. Kind of parent, imagine these sections are in brackets to the main kind of things I've been saying. So he's died in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. And then in this spirit realm, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, what's going on here? Well, one possible reading, which was convincing to me, came from Wayne Grudem. Um, and it's, it's quite historic, actually, from Augustine all the way through. Um, though I certainly wouldn't bet my life on it, explains it like this. Just like Jesus was raised in the realm of the Spirit, so too Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, used Noah, now going way back when, so we're outside of time. So Jesus, through the Spirit, helped Noah back in the time of the flood to preach to sinful people who were now in prison being waiting for final judgment, but they were just normal people walking around at that time, and called them to repentance. God was patient with that generation. 120 years took Noah to build the ark and gave them time to repent although many of them didn't, only a very small number were saved, eight in all. And so those who didn't were are now spirits trapped in prison, waiting the final judgment. Um, and only a small number, like the Christians in Peter's time, were saved. That's my sort of very simplified understanding of what that passage is actually saying. So the reason he brings it up is because he's, he's trying to speak to embattled believers who are small in number feel like no one is on board. They've got these glorious truths, like we're preaching, Christ died for our sins, He rose again, He ascended into heaven, but their daily experience is weakness and suffering and, and people aren't on board. And so He says, well, remember Noah. Noah was a preacher and a herald of righteousness. Noah had the Spirit of Christ in him and he was preaching to people, yet so many people didn't even believe. And so He's r reminding us, keep going. Uh, keep preaching, like it says in verse 15 that we read earlier, give a reason for the hope that is in you. The result is up to God, uh, but we are called to be faithful like Noah to keep preaching. And we can be encouraged that even though we may be small in number, we can be confident in our salvation 
Because like Noah, only eight people were saved, but they were saved. Uh, and they were brought through the floodwaters into salvation. I think that's what Peter's saying. I wouldn't bet my life on it, certainly none of my children's lives on it. But that, I think, is a decent enough explanation of what Peter's trying to get at there. And then he gives a second extra nugget which flows on from this in verse 21. So he's on this topic of small in number, uh, keep preaching the gospel, people don't like you, Noah saved through waters, and then he's like, oh yeah, and baptism. Um, So baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And then he comes back to through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you see how the, the passage is bracketed by resurrection of Jesus Christ, resurrection of Jesus Christ, this section on Noah, and this section on baptism. And Peter draws a parallel between the flood waters, which led to judgment and death and salvation for some, and the waters of baptism, which is a similar symbolism. When we baptize someone and we move those carpet panels there and, and we fill up the tank and we, you know, we baptize John and we baptize Amanda and we baptize a, you know, Doug and Carice and who else got baptized that day? Sarah. Sarah. Oh, how can we forget Sarah who nearly, who nearly died um, in that process? <laughs> you can ask me about that story later. When we take someone under the water, um, it, you know, there is a moment, it's a beautiful moment, but there is, like, as someone who's baptized people, there, it is sort of a scary thing because you, you plunge their whole body underwater. And as you know, humans don't really live underwater. Um, and as you look at their face, like, they're really underwater. Uh, and it symbolizes death. Uh, and coming under the waters of baptism is a symbolization of our sins being put to death. Like Christ died on the cross, our sins died with him. And so we go under the waters of baptism to symbolize we're dead in our sins. And then we come up out of the waters and it symbolizes that we've been resurrected with Christ. And so Peter uses this analogy to encourage the believers again that their baptism is a sign of their good conscience. That is that before God, their sins have been buried and that they have new life with Christ. But Peter's clear, he, he wants to make sure that we understand that the act of baptism doesn't save anyone. That's why he says, not through the, you know, um, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not like just dunking people saves them. Otherwise, we just, you know, we'd go on covert baptism missions where people would be walking past, dunk, and oh, yeah, you're going to heaven. And we just go and baptize the whole world if that's how it worked. But that's not how it works. What's, what works is our faith in Christ. That's what saves us. And baptism is a symbol of how we've died to sin and have new life in Christ. And it's a symbol that is ought to give us confidence. Confidence that that really happened. And therefore, we really will be with God. We can have a good conscience before God because we've obeyed the gospel to repent and believe. And so a question for you is, do you have that confidence that this verse speaks of, this good conscience before God? Have you put your faith in Christ this morning? Are you certain that your sins have been buried with Christ and that you will be raised on the last day, that you will come safely through the waters of judgment? And also a question to ask is, are you baptized yet as a believer? 
Uh, the scriptures teach that baptism is a sign of our salvation and therefore the, the clearest explanation and the clearest way of doing that is to get baptized after you've put your faith in Christ. And if you haven't yet, put your, if you haven't yet been baptized, I encourage you to speak to me. I'd love to talk to you about it and I'd love to see anyone here that's not been baptized as a believer get baptized because it's a sign and a seal from God of what has already taken place in the gospel. So, Peter's trying to encourage the Christians, I'm trying to you know, keep it on track, to see through our sufferings to the victory of our Savior. So we see Christ's substitutionary death. We might suffer, but His suffering is the ultimate one, and that provides the pathway to victory. And the first step is the victorious resurrection. He victor had victory over death and rose again, and we will too. And then it leads to the third thing Peter wants us to see, which is Christ's exalted ascension. Read verse 22. So through the power, or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we've gone through the waters of death, up out of the waters into resurrection, and now Peter takes us to the final, one of the final elements of the gospel, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And I don't want us to miss the significance of ascension. We often think of it geographically, you know, Jesus on like an elevator, do, 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 do. you know, he went up into heaven, like, oh, that's cool, that's a good party trick. But actually, to ascend in the theological sense is to ascend to the throne. Think of a grand old palace, and you've got everyone on the ground level, and then you know, you go up, 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 up the stairs, and the king's throne is at the top. And the ascension of Christ, though it did happen geographically, he ascended and then disappeared. We don't know where he went. Theologically, he ascended to the throne. And that's where Jesus sits right now. He is, he's not just a philosophy, a Christianity is not a worldview. No, no, Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne of heaven and nothing escapes his gaze. Every single thing that is happening in the world, in your life, in our hostile environment, is under his rulership. That's why Peter makes it clear, all these things are subject to him, angels, authorities, and powers. And if you've been with us since chapter 2, we've been, we've been told that as Christians in this world, we are to be subject Subject to the governing authorities, slaves subject to masters, wives subject to husbands. But now we see the, the end game. Everything is subjected to him. It's actually a quote from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So even though we might look small in number and Christianity might be fading into obscurity, um, or enmity in our culture, Jesus is up there on the throne and his feet are on all of his enemies. He's ruling and reigning and nothing is over the top of him. And the gospel can never go backward, only forward. The church can never go backward, only forward. And our lives can never go backward, only forward because we're identified with him. David Helm says of this text, our text has a definite movement and flow of thought. It starts with Christ's sufferings, but ends with his ascension. 
It opens with his willful submission to unrighteous rulers, but by the time it closes, a complete reversal has taken place. The submissive son is by the end the ruling king, seated at the right hand of God. And everything, all angels, authorities and powers are now subject to him. Therefore, we can say that Peter wants to encourage us by lifting our hearts and minds to heaven where Christ is already seated. In other words, take heart, you too shall one day win. Sojourners and faithful ones who are living out life during these difficult days in tough, out-of-the-way places, know this, you will be vindicated for staying the course. Christ was vindicated, and you shall be too. Christ saw a great reversal of fortunes, and so shall you. And that's the intended effect of this passage. We put it all together, all these pictures, and the point is, Jesus wins, and therefore we win as well. We might look like we're losing, but we win. Therefore, don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't go backwards. Don't change the plan. Don't mold to this world. Keep following Christ, no matter what suffering it might put us in. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that, you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we win too. To students who are at school or university, it might seem so ridiculous and intellectually feeble to believe in Christ. Well, see his victory. To singles who are forsaking sexual pleasure and the relational companionship out of devotion to Christ, see his victory. To workers who may lose your job because you hold to an ethical standard at odds with this world, see his victory. To those at home who so often feel like the glory is everywhere else, whether you're a mom, a retiree, or unemployed, see his victory. To the dispersion of saints at Sovereign Grace Parramatta who may suffer for the cause of Christ, who may be mocked, who may be physically assaulted one day, who knows, who may be imprisoned or who may lose their lives, friends, see his victory because it's our victory. We share in the upward ascension of Christ. His death was our death. His resurrection is our resurrection and his ascension is our ascension. Ephesians tells us that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. It doesn't feel like it, but that's the reality. Daniel Doriani also says this, It is all too common for Western Christians to obsess over their pains and sorrows. But if we can discipline ourselves to lift up our eyes from present troubles, we should find courage in knowing that we will follow the pattern of Christ through suffering to resurrection and vindication. That speaks to me. When I'm suffering and in pain, even if it's not for Christ, it's just physical suffering, I'm so obsessed with myself and my own story and what's going on in my world. But this passage is here to lift our eyes out of that, to see Christ again, and to see that in his victory, we have victory. To give us courage to tread the well-worn path of suffering, 
Who knows what our future holds for us in this country? There may be revival and Christianity may be celebrated again. Or there may be intense persecution. Either way, this passage is here to encourage us to keep going. He has won, therefore we will win, no matter what it looks like in the world around us. We're going to close by singing two songs. I'm getting at least a few extra songs in. We're going to sing two songs that will help us to experience the glory of this reality. And I'll invite the band up. And as the band comes up, I invite you all to stand as a church because I want us to read Psalm 2 together as a church, which will be on the screen. Uh, this is a psalm designed for the people of God to, even in, in their suffering, to rejoice. Yeah, is it? Yeah. Um, to rejoice in the victory that the king has. This is actually about Jesus. So let's say Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Can we speak a bit louder, please? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray, and you guys can start. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would help us to enjoy this victory today. Lord, I pray and ask that you would encourage our souls that you've gone before us, that you died in our place and for our sins through your son, Jesus Christ, and that we are saved. And then you rose your son from the grave and ascended him to heaven where he sits at your right hand, where he rules and reigns, and we share in that victory. Yes. Lord, I pray and ask that if anyone here that has not yet kissed the son, that they would pledge allegiance to Christ today and avoid your just anger and wrath. Would you have mercy upon them, move through your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. And for us all, O oh Lord, may we rejoice in this great victory. In Jesus' name, amen.